When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from American Media for saints and sinners. You can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church and our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Happy second week of Advent. I know. Tomorrow. Less than two weeks ago till Christmas. Yep. It's As your shopping crazy. coming. Well, you know, I'm about halfway there. A couple more big ticket items I should really nail down. Um, Secret Santa is tomorrow for our office Christmas party. Need to nail that down. <laughs> Um, so. Plenty of time. <laughs> Plenty of time. Plenty of time. I know. I'm feeling very behind on the Christmas party. I, As you know, I put a lot of effort into decorating for the Christmas party each year. And I haven't hung up a single snowflake. So it's going to be a long night. Are you doing that tonight? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Good luck. Thank you. Uh, I'd say I'd stick around and help you, but I'm probably not going to. <laughs> no, and this, this Advent is super compressed this year because like fourth Sunday of Advent runs right into Christmas Eve. Yeah, what's your uh, mass plan? You gonna do I, the Saturday vigil, Sunday vigil? I have no idea. Two masses even, on Sunday. I look. I I have some feelings about this. I feel like someone could have moved this calendar around a little bit um, <laughs> instead of just following the the moons or something. But I don't know. Asking people to go to mass twice. I know people are gonna roll their eyes and be like, "It's not that hard." But for like the holidays are already so jam packed, uh, and if you've got like multiple families you got to visit, and you're trying to squeeze in two masses in one day, I think that's. That's a lot. but So I've got to figure out my plan. I'm, I think right. I'm probably going to do the Saturday vigil, which will cover my- Sunday obligation. Fourth Sunday of Advent obligation. And then I like, a, I like midnight mass. I Yeah, that's kind of my right. preferred Christmas mass. Do you, have you done midnight Christmas I mass? I haven't. No, I've only ever- Oh, no, that's not true. I did Christmas mass at the Vatican at midnight uh, in 2005. But otherwise, it's always been the 5 p.m. children's mass at St. Agnes Parish in Arlington, Virginia. I, I do, I, you know, I'm torn because I love the like kids' mass on Christmas Eve because it's, it's just absolute, absolute chaos, total pandemonium. But the midnight masses are a bit more quiet. Their um, music's a little better. Um, everybody's kind of just like chill. Um, and there are kids there too, um, but for some reason they're half asleep because it's midnight. <laughs> anyway, we got a great show. That's not what we're talking about at all this week. We sure do. We are talking to Stephanie Saldana. You might remember her from a 2018 episode. We spoke to her about a very interesting life she has led. She was a journalist uh, visiting a monastery in Syria and fell in love with a novice. And now she's married to a Syriac priest. They were in Ju Jerusalem for many years and they recently moved to Bethlehem. Um, and this Bethlehem, as you imagine, around Christmas time is a very bustling place. But this year it's a bit different, of course, because of the war in Gaza. Yeah, that's right. So Stephanie has a really great perspective, both on um, the situation on the ground in Bethlehem and in Israel and Palestine, but also on what that means for her own spirituality and how she's approaching Christmas this year. Yes. And she has suggested a drink for us, uh, which is a rock. 
Yes, which we've had before. Um, our friends at Unorthodox have made this for us in the past, but um, it's it's kind of like the, it tastes a little like Sambuca-y or Uzo-y. It's um, got this kind of like licorice flavor. It's it's a liquor. Um, Sebastian, our producer, looked this up. Evidently, that means the word Iraq is sweat in Arabic. Perspiration. Perspiration. <laughs> it does sound a little nice. I don't know. It sounds worse, I think. Uh, but it tastes way better than sweat. Nice. So cheers. Cheers. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And we're going to be talking a lot about uh, burials and funerals in our first two stories. So we learned today uh, that Pope Francis knows where he wants to get buried, and it's not at the Vatican. It's going to be a wild thing to think about when you're Pope, because I guess you can just like, I mean, we were just in Rome. There's a lot of beautiful churches there. And the default is kind of you get buried at St. Peter's Basilica, but it's not, you know, necessarily where you have to get buried. And Pope Francis is kind of switching things up a little bit here. Yes. So he's going to get buried at St. Mary Major in Rome. It is it's an impressive church in its own right. Um, I actually went there for the first time when we were in Rome uh, covering the Synod this October. Um, And Pope Francis has a special devotion to this church and in particular to a a Byzantine icon of Our Lady, um, protectress of the Roman people uh, that's at at this basilica. His first act as Pope was going to pray before this icon. And since then, he's actually gone back over 100 times to pray there. And he does so... um, uh, before and after each of his foreign trips. So this is a very special place to Pope Francis, and he's decided that unlike many of his predecessors, he'll be buried there and not at St. Peter's. Yeah, he's the first pope in, I, I think, over 100 years to choose to not be buried at St. Peter's. I think Leo Thirteenth was the last one um, yeah. to pick. Um, you have in the script here, fun fact about Mary uh, Major, so yeah. I'd like you to just <laughs> go ahead. Okay, Fire that so I, I went, as I mentioned, in October, and um, I was with our uh, producer, Sebastian, and we went into one of the chapels and found out that the altar there is actually the first altar where uh, St. Ignatius said Mass. It was it was Christmas Day, and he had just gotten his approval from the Pope, and so he celebrated Mass at this altar that you can find at uh, St. Mary Major. Oh, nice little Jesuit history yeah. there. Um, I was probably working while you guys were off touring yeah. from not eating gelato. <laughs> uh, one more thing from Pope Francis's interview. He also said that he plans to simplify the papal funeral rites, uh, which currently stretch over nine days. So he wants, you know, in true Francis style, something a little simpler for his funeral. Nine but days. the real question is, will he have on eagle's wings? That's a great question. I wonder what music he's picked. One quick thing. I feel like Mary Major, it's kind of one of these like B-list sites right now, I think, in Rome. Most people don't go see it. But it is once, off the beaten path a little Yeah, bit. it's a little further out. But once if Francis is buried there, I think they're going to be overwhelmed with pilgrims That's visiting true. him. Um, all right. What's our next story, Ashley? All right. So Pope Francis was constrained in where he could be buried as Pope because the Vatican just made clear that you can't scatter your ashes as a Catholic in nature, as is becoming more popular. Well, the Vatican has been pretty clear about that for a while now, but they, they released this, this new uh, guideline that's reaffirmed that. But they did say, and this was surprising to me, that... Um, Families could keep a minimal part of cremated remains in a, quote, significant place. So um, I was always told that, like, ashes needed – you could get cremated, but your ashes needed to be, like, interred somewhere semi-permanently. Yes, and in a consecrated place. So basically a a Catholic cemetery. Right. But the Vatican also said something interesting, which I'm still trying to unpack, is that ecclesial authorities can designate um, specific places for the commingling of ashes. So like a family in theory could have their ashes commingled and put in a certain consecrated place as long as 
it indicates like specifically which bodies and people are buried there, um, which I'm not really sure what that would look like, but also also allowed now. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think what the church is trying to like, the line it's trying to walk here is one is like a deep respect for human remains, like matter matters in the Catholic church. And so it's not just like, it's not just dust, right? Yeah. It, it is something significant. Um, it matters to to us and to God. Um, on the other hand, I think I've heard some people say like, oh, well, you can't do that because at the resurrection, your body body will be in a bunch of different places and God won't. And that's not what the church believes. It is not. At all. But one thing they do want to protect against is, quoting from this uh, note, is every type of pantheistic, naturalistic, or nihilistic misunderstanding of burials in the body. So it is becoming more common for people to maybe want to, you know, have their ashes spread in a forest and you know, feel like they are becoming part of the trees or something like that, which I, you know, is a lovely thought. But the church is not on board with us just like becoming trees and then worshiping nature. No, just uh, <laughs> chopping up saints' bodies and spreading them all around the world. That's fine. So anyway, we, we've got the link to the Vatican's full uh, cremated cremation guidelines in our show notes. All right. What's our next story, Zach? Uh, something a little closer to home. A group of nuns are suing gun manufacturer Smith & Wesson for, quote, putting shareholders at risk in the way it makes markets and sells its AR-15 style rifle. So group of nuns suing gun manufacturers, um, which is interesting because the group of nuns are actually shareholders in Smith and Wesson, yeah. So they're they're small share shareholders. They have a hundred shares, and there's maybe forty six million is something is what I read. Um, so not too much power over the company, but it did give them standing. It seems to to say as shareholders, they are being hurt by Smith and Wesson's uh, advertising practices, which they argue target this young male demographic with these military style assault rifles, and which have then gone on to be. Um, to figure in multiple high-profile mass shootings. Most recently in Maine, yeah. I, I think. So it's fascinating because it's like this idea of being a shareholder like in a company. Some schools of activism would say like, oh, you have to totally abstain from engaging with these groups. And um, However, this group of nuns, and they've been at this for a long time. This is not the first company or instance of shareholder activism. Uh, by getting a stake at the table, you have more influence over the kind of things they do. Um, so I looked and found this uh, New York Times profile from 2011 on shareholder activist nuns and says they've gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with Kroger over farm worker rights, so with McDonald's over childhood obesity, Wells Fargo over lending practices, um, Goldman Sachs over like executive uh, pay dis like discrepancies between uh, other workers. I mean, it's it really fascinating and interesting way for nuns to kind of get their like moral cause across. I think. Yeah, no, and I think they've been bolstered by the fact that this has worked in recent years. Uh, a group sued. I forget if it was Smith and Wesson or another um, gun manufacturer, but for damages over. Sandy Hook. So families around that had, took a t similar track of um, the way that these guns are advertised appeals to people who will engage in these mass acts of murder. Yeah. So I this wanted to bring the story because um, it's just like an interesting way of, of Catholic activism. But we shouldn't be surprised. Like nuns find a billion different ways to be awesome. Um, and this is just another example. All right. Now stick around for our conversation with Stephanie Saldana.
Joining us from Bethlehem is Stephanie Saldana. Stephanie is a writer and the author of What We Remember Will Be Saved, a story of refugees and the things they carry. Welcome back to Jesuitical, Stephanie. Hi, it's great to be back. It's so good to see you. The last time we were together, we were having having tea in Bethlehem. So I wish that's what we were doing again, but this will have to do for now, I suppose. <laughs> do you mind just like telling us uh, where you're located, how you got there, um, and, and what's life like in Bethlehem right now? Sure. Um, I lived in, in Jerusalem with my family for many years, about 15 or 16 years. And about a year and a half ago, we moved to Bethlehem, which is where my husband is the parish priest of the Syriac Catholic Church, um, an Eastern Rite Church. And we're right in the heart of Bethlehem, right on the main street called Manger Street. This is not Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. We're talking- No, this is Bethlehem, Bethlehem. Got um, it, okay. Where where Jesus was born. So we live right in the heart of the town. So if you walk up from our Manger Street, you arrive at the manger. Or if you prefer, you can go up a little bit from my street onto Star Street. And there you can follow the way that the three wise men took to arrive at the manger. And you, when you say manger, you mean the literal place where, you know, traditionally we believe Jesus was born. There's the Church of the Nativity. You can go down. There's a little star that you can kiss and pray in front of. You're, you are right there. Yeah, the Basilica of the Nativity is really at the heart of Bethlehem. And everything leads up to it. So when you're going up Manger Street, you sort of feel like gravity is pulling you to the church. You can get lost in Bethlehem and you'll just arrive at the church. Everything leads to the church, which is just at the heart of the of the city. So Manger Street leads there or Star Street where the three wise men went. Um, and in front of me, um, I look out on Shepherd's Field, where the the angels appeared to the shepherds. So I'm living in a kind of just the landscape of the Gospels, and that's where I pass my days. What What is life typically like there? Um, I imagine there's got to be a lot of pilgrimages that happen in Bethlehem. So could you just describe, like maybe before the war started, what life in Bethlehem is typically like? Sure. Um, Bethlehem is the essence of a walkable city. It's really a town. You walk everywhere and everyone knows each other. So imagine just being in a town where everywhere you look, everybody is greeting everyone around them because everybody knows all of the people that they're passing by. So um, it's a bunch of very small shops. Um, So the manger bakery beneath us, we know all the bakers. all of the shopkeepers. And then of course, there's a lot of tourism here. So the majority of the income from Bethlehem comes from tourists. So a lot of pilgrims coming in. So it feels like Advent all the time in Bethlehem. It's sort of in a perpetual Advent where everything is always leading up to Christmas. Yeah, I actually went, I was in Bethlehem. It was right after Christmas in 2011, 2012. And the square is quite impressive in normal times and bustling. Can you describe back in 2011 what people would have seen if they came around Christmas time in this part of Bethlehem? Well, it's important to say we're a very ecumenical city. So we have three Christmases. Um, we have the Catholic Christmas and the Orthodox Christmas and then the Armenian Christmas. So I, I often like to joke that here, you know, Santa knows when you've been sleeping, he knows when you're awake, and he knows if you're Catholic, Orthodox, or Armenian. (laughs) (laughs) And so so Christmas is really long. It starts early, and then it goes all the way through January. And there's a big Christmas tree lighting. 
um, every year in Major Square, an enormous Christmas tree. Um, we have the scouts. Here, scouts are musical troops from all of the churches who play the bagpipes and the drums, and they march in front of um, all of the, the patriarchs um, and the religious leaders. Um, so we have a lot of parades. On Star Street, there's a big Christmas market every year. So it's actually a little bit exhausting. It's just all Christmas. Sounds like all Rockefeller the time. Center. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's wonderful. It's it's just uh, magical to be here during Christmas time. Now, one of the things that is pretty striking was for me and for a lot of the pilgrims that we bring uh, here in America, we've taken them to Bethlehem is uh, the first thing you notice is you pass through a checkpoint and a pretty substantial wall on mm-hmm. your way into Bethlehem. So um, I think a lot of people are surprised to you know, learn that uh, Bethlehem is in the West Bank, um, that thought never crossed their mind. Um, but could you describe that dynamic for the city in, in normal times? Sure. Um, so it's uh, the separation wall uh, runs between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. So uh, normally to get in and out, you would go through a checkpoint, um, which sometimes can take time. Um, so many people in Bethlehem don't have permits, so they can't even go through the checkpoint. So yeah, Bethlehem is a city really in the West Bank, but very different than Jerusalem. I think that's what's surprising to pilgrims. When they arrive, they arrive to a completely Palestinian town where everybody's speaking Arabic. And for me, when I first arrived there in 1999, for the first time I visited, it was the first time that I met you know, Arab Christians. So very often it's the first time that people learn about Christian communities in the Middle East. Sometimes the first time they hear people praying in Arabic. Um, so that's a very beautiful world that people often discover when they come for the first time. And for you and for others in Bethlehem, are you going to Jerusalem? Can you go back and forth easily? And is, is your experience common? Um, well, that's a that's a bit of a complicated question. Um, during normal times, we have you know we belong to the church, so we can go go back and forth. Um, but since the events of October seventh, there's been a closure in Bethlehem, and so it's much harder to go back and forth. But my children go to school in Jerusalem, actually, so they have to go back and forth every single day. So they wake up very early to make that that journey. But a lot of people right now um, aren't able to travel. That has to be devastating especially for a region that relies on tourism for most of its uh, economic activity, I imagine. How are people, I mean, faring and working? Bethlehem, I would say it's leaning towards economic collapse. Um, Almost everyone in Bethlehem relies on tourism for their livelihood. Um, Some others rely on working in Jerusalem, but um, workers haven't been allowed through since the start of the war. And so a lot of people are without work. Um, A lot of people are struggling to put food on the table. Um, So it's a very, very difficult time, especially since the hotels here were closed during COVID. So during the COVID period, people used up all of their savings and they felt like they were just starting to get back to sort of normal um, when this started. So a lot of people struggling right now. So... After the attack on Israel on October 7th, Israel launched its war. Um, And one thing we've seen since then is that the heads of the churches in Jerusalem 
and and I guess in Bethlehem too, have have called on people to kind of pare down their Christmas celebrations. As you said, normally it's parades, a huge tree, lights. And so there's kind of a call to have a more somber mood in recognition of what's happening in Gaza right now. So what exactly is happening to, to Advent and Christmas right now in Bethlehem? How has it changed? Well, well, yes, there's no Christmas tree lighting, no scouts. Um, they took down decorations for the most part. And so there was really an invitation by the heads of the churches to look for the deeper meaning of, of Christmas, which is really to look for, for hope, um, to try to see God present. I often, I tell people that you know, this Advent, we don't have the luxury of waiting for God to show up. Like, we need God right now. Um, and so it's really been looking around, noticing God already here with us, while seeing that on Christmas, God will be even more fully revealed. Uh, a lot of spending time together as a church, um, praying, and just being together. I've thought so much about this Emmanuel, this this being with, which is both God with us, but I think a model of calling us to, to be close to, to everyone. Um, Cardinal Pizzaballa, the patriarchy, he said, now is the time for closeness. And so I think all of us have been trying to learn how we can become closer to God and how we can be closer to one another and everyone on all sides of the conflict. I mean, Christians, I mean, represent a pretty small number in, in the region. Just quickly, what's the breakdown of Bethlehem? Does that mirror the region or are there more Christians there? There are many more Christians in, in Bethlehem. Um, Bethlehem has, I think, the largest sort of proportion of Christians. So we have a sizable Christian community here, but um, it's between one and 2%, I believe, in, in Israel and the West Bank for the whole population. So we're very, very small. We really take our theology from mustard seeds and, um, you know, the the leaven and the bread, and we're trying to to think about how we as a small community can can matter. Um, and I think Cardinal Pizzaballa has done a beautiful job of really inviting the Christians to to witness peace in this period, to really um, open up dialogue, to love, to talk about forgiveness, reconciliation, to talk about the future, the day after. You know, really an invitation to always speak in a way that opens up horizons instead of closing them down. In a, in a moment in which so much of the talk is sort of closing things down or closing people off from one another. So I think this little community, we really feel our vocation right now and that's something beautiful. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline.
Can you take us back to October 7th when this war first started? As someone who, you're not originally from the region, this is a war that often talked about in terms of Jews versus Muslims, Israelis versus Palestinians or Hamas. How did you react initially? And then how have you understood the war since then as as an American living in Israel, as as a Christian? It's it's much more present to you than it is to us to us here. Sure. I mean, we woke up on October 7th, which was a Saturday. I read the news and I could have, I just couldn't really believe what was happening. I mean, we were all in, in total shock and total and complete shock. And, and as you might remember, it took a long time for it sort of to become apparent what was happening that day. Um, and then Bethlehem closed. And so we were very scared. Um, we had no idea what was going to happen next. Um, but the next day was a Sunday. Um, and so our church filled up. And there was actually a Syriac group from Canada that was trapped in Bethlehem. So they came to the church and the church was packed. And you could actually hear rockets going overhead. And everyone was singing. And I remember I was just looking around and saying, like, this is my, this is my family. And it was the first time I understood that here, the church is your first home. Um, it's your sanctuary. And that was such an incredible thing to, to recognize. I don't know. There was just this profound sense of, of fear and love. Um, slowly, slowly, many of my friends in, in Jerusalem who had dual passports, they started to leave. That was really scary. Um, and so we didn't know if we would leave or stay. Um, but my husband, as I, I mentioned, I guess I didn't mention yet, my husband is, a, is the pastor of the, of the parish. He's, the, he's a married priest in the Syriac Catholic um, Church. This is our, our family. Um, and so there was this, there's a sense also of responsibility of wanting for people to know that they have a home. Um, so that's the way we've been living it. Slowly, I've been able to travel to Jerusalem. My children have been able to go back to school. Um, and I think all of us have just been trying to deepen in our faith. Um, there's been a lot of stories of people, of friendships who have fallen apart, you know, old friendships that have fallen apart um, under the weight of the war. And um, that would be a disaster. So there's been actually the work of now is to be with, to be with my friends who are Israeli, to be with my friends who are Palestinian, to be with the church, to be with my children. That becomes the entire project of a life during wartime is just to be present for people and to allow people to, you know, also be present for you and to show love. I think people here find that difficult, even just talking about the war in the United States. I can't imagine what it's like to try and um, witness that presence you know, in the midst of, of the war. What are some of the things you're hearing about how people are, are feeling about the situation? I mean, Bethlehem in the West Bank, is it's not Gaza, but I imagine people, everyone has opinions about this. What are some of those things you're hearing from your friends that are Israeli and Palestinian? I think everybody is afraid. Everybody is afraid, and a lot of people are acting out of their fear. And 
so many people are heartbroken. As you know, it's just been a war, which from its very first day has been about the loss of children. I know that you had Hirsch's mom on the other day. Um, I have actually quite a lot of friends who knew Hirsch. And so um, whether they're Palestinians or Israelis, it's a moment where parents are grieving for their children who they've lost, are afraid for their children. It's very much here experienced as, as something happening in families. Um, and in the Christian community, uh, a lot of people have relatives in Gaza and the Gazan Christian community is tiny. It's a thousand people. And so, as you may have heard in the bombing of the building that was in the Greek Orthodox Church compound, we lost uh, 17 Christians. And since then, we've lost five more. Um, so that's 22 Christians in all, which sounds tiny, but that's 2.2% of the entire Christian community of Gaza who has died. Um, so um, people are mourning, people are grieving. Of course, people are talking about whether they should stay or try to migrate, which is a big fear here. Um, and on good days, uh, people are thinking about the day after. I had a, a beautiful experience here when I was walking down Star Street, and there was a neighbor named Suleiman, and he was putting out these old antique chairs and wiping them down and leaving them out to dry. And I looked at him like he was crazy. I mean, everything is falling apart, and he's putting out these chairs. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, we're going to open a cafe when this is over. And so I'm just getting everything ready and wiping down the chairs. I just sort of laughed and I kept walking. And then I thought, that's the kingdom. Like that is the, I just had a glimpse of the kingdom, which is somebody who can be in war and still see beyond it and already start to prepare for, you know, better times ahead. And I've been thinking about that image as a kind of guidepost for how we might be both present to the reality of what's going on, but also holding on to hope of better times ahead. Mm. Yeah, we always talk of Advent as a time of preparation, but that's such a profound and concrete <laughs> way of, of, of preparing in this time. I'm wondering personally, in your own Advent prayer practice or spirituality like how has it changed for you what are you doing in the weeks leading up to christmas that's different well this year. i've been i've been working on this piece for america so that's <laughs> that's allowed me to, to think about it very concretely as if it, um you know my my daughter who's eight years old has really you know she's she said some things during the the war which have really crystallized advent for me um, one of them was, was simply the other day she heard my, my family is Franco-American. So she heard my, my sons talking about the famous Christmas truces that happened during World War I and, and France and um, during the First World War. And so the other day at dinner, she said, maybe Christmas will end the war. And of course, I just, when my sons and I, we just looked at each other sort of like with that look of, Oh, sweet eight-year-old Carmel to think that Christmas will, will end the war. But then later when I was alone and sort of thinking, it came to me like, I want to take that seriously. Like maybe, isn't that what Christmas is about? Like maybe Christmas will end the war. Maybe, maybe our hearts will really be transformed. 
I really want to believe in something more. I want the concreteness of incarnation. And I guess I was recently with Jacques Jacquemin. He's from an 800-year-old. His family's been here for 800 years in in Bethlehem. And he uh, makes nativity sets. And so I was talking to him about these nativity sets. And I asked, why is his work important? And he said, because it's not enough to hear the story of Christmas. You have to hold it in your hands. And I've been thinking about that this year. Like, I want a Christmas that I can hold in my hands. I want it to be real. I want to feel the peace that God promised us um, with each other and this country. Um, And so this shaking up, this waiting, this hoping, it's the most real Advent I've ever lived in my life, that's for sure. Well, Stephanie, thank you for your witness for for staying for your closeness to the people to your friends um we're praying for you and and, and for for your family and your friends and your neighbors um i think it's a good place to end but before we let you go we want to ask you what we ask all of our guests which is if you could canonize one person living or dead catholic or not fictional or real who would it be and why great well i'm going to kind of cheat on that question because uh one of the things i've been thinking about um is when When the restorers were working in the Church of the Nativity, they found, um, I think it was in 2016, they they found a hidden angel. Uh, This angel had been hidden behind all of this plaster. And when they uncovered the angel, the angel was pointing in the direction of the manger. And so I've been sort of praying with that image of this hidden angel and just realizing that all around me, whether it's Sammy making tea, uh, who we went to visit, who makes tea with rose petals and cinnamon and ginger and lemon, or whether it's Jack making his mangers, or or whether it's the bakers beneath my house who are giving bread to my daughter. I think the city is full of these hidden saints who will never be canonized. And I just sort of want to hold them up right now because they're the people who are giving me hope every day. All right. Awesome. Uh, we're going to link to your piece in America in the show notes um, and also uh, your your recent book. So Stephanie, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great. I'm going to go have a beer now. <laughs> Good. Enjoy it. <laughs> thanks, Stephanie. Sure. All right. Take care. Take care. Now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. Just a quick couple things this week. First, want to give a huge shout out to some new Patreon supporters. So thank you so much to people that have joined in the last couple of weeks. Teresa Patak, Eileen Sleva, Bernard J. Costello, and Sean Connor. Uh, thank you guys so much. Uh, they are part of our Patreon supporters community, which is going to be getting a bonus episode over the holidays. 
Yes, we just recorded this, and it's another mailbag episode where we took questions from our Patreon community, and we talk about the synod, parish life, you know, Zach's favorite bugaboo of closing down all the parishes. <laughs> no, he, he gives a more nuanced response. Unfairly maligned. If you, if you listen to this bonus episode, you'll get his real deep thoughts about the future of parish life. Um, and then some, you know, miscellaneous questions, our favorite hymns, our confirmation saints, all that good stuff. My favorite, Nebbiolo uh, for the holidays. <laughs> yeah, lots of wine talk. <laughs> yeah, some wine talk. And that is where we are first announcing some of our dates for Q1 for our little Jesuitical uh, roadshow. So we've got some uh, pretty exciting events coming up in January, February, March. So if you want to be the first to hear about those, uh, make sure you tune into our mailbag episode, which again is available to our supporters who can sign up at patreon.com slash America Media. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. You're up, Zach. Yes, I wanted to talk about gift giving and really more gift receiving uh, this season. Always more fun to receive. <laughs> yeah, that's I, I agree. And I, I in the past have been someone who stresses a lot about Christmas gift buying. So I'm trying to like maybe add a little bit more of a spiritual practice to it this year. And I was I, I came across this Instagram reel where it was like. Uh, Dudley Dursley from the first Harry Potter movie where he's like getting all his presents and he's like, how many are there? It's that's less, less than last year. It's uh, last year was 37, not 36. And um, so that's obviously the worst way to receive gifts. Right. Um, but it got me thinking about like, what does it mean to be a good gift receiver? Because I was chatting with a friend recently who uh, said that she's trying to work on being a better a gift receiver from presents from her mother. Um, evidently, a cousin had clued her in that she needs to be a little bit better about her poker face when she unwraps <laughs> the sweater, which isn't really the one she asked for, and it's in the wrong size and a different color that her mom thought would be just right for her instead of the one she actually wanted. Yeah. And sometimes you kind of just got to grin it and bear it, right? Like this person- I, I have to admit, like I, if any of my family is listening to this, they'll be like, Ashley, be, be truthful. <laughs> I've, in the past, I've not always been the best gift receiver. I've, I've been like our, our good friend there. And I don't know, like I remember when I was younger, I imbued all this meeting into gifts. It was like if they didn't give me the right gift, it's because they didn't really know me like as an angsty teenager. Oh, man. That's tough. <laughs> so there, I have shed tears on Christmas, which I'm ashamed to say. Thank God I'm not your secret <laughs> Santa this year for the office Christmas party. So, OK, but what does it mean to be a good yeah. gift receiver? And I, I'm... I, Thinking about this also because with Christmas, I think we're asked to think about what what are the gifts that God gives us in our lives and what are the things that we can hope for and ask for. And so what is like a good disposition for receiving gifts? I think one is just like so being delighted that something is coming your way at all um, and knowing that like this person did think of it, right? And being open to like an idea that like even this isn't what I wanted, this person thought about me and thought I like this was the best for me, you know. It putting the best spin on that if it's like a if not this Christmas party or something. You know, maybe it's not always the case, but I think being willing to be open to that idea. I don't know how many times I have like encountered things in my life where I, I have a hard time seeing it as a gift from God or it's not quite the thing that I, I, I wanted to happen. Um, in reality, it's like turned out like God was totally right and that's the direction I needed to go anyway. I don't know if you have any other tips for being a good gift receiver, either from, from God or from uh, your family. <laughs> Yeah, I think just like going back to like the root of gift, like gratuity, like th there didn't need to be anything. <laughs> like yep. if, if your expectation is nothing, then even the idea of receiving a gift should fill you with joy. And I have that is I heard this interview years ago and it was just like using this metaphor of like your life as like a glass. And it's like you can either like 
create your life to be a very small glass and then when you get anything it'll overflow or you can you can construct a very large glass and then you'll mm. get a drop and be like mm, still thirsty <laughs> I, I do feel like my apartment in new york is a pretty tiny space Mine's and so long. anytime i get anything <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. it, it Overflows. Exactly. And so I'm, I am trying to request from all my family, like, just no things this yes. year. Uh, so anyway, listeners, I'll leave you with that. What are some practices that have helped you uh, be a good gift receiver, either from God or from your office mate at the office Christmas party? All right. I will get us out of here. Judge Whittacle is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Michael O'Brien, Delaney Coyne, and Kevin Christopher Robles, who is also our sound engineer. Faith Formation, provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on X and Instagram at Judge Whittacle Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Judge Whittacle. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Judge Whittacle is recorded in the William J. Loeshirt Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless, Lissac Davis. We'll see you next week. Thank you.